Would you take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to the book of Mark. The book of Mark, chapter number 6. As I said, Pastor Mark and Suzanne, our senior pastor and his wife, are on vacation. My name is Pastor Bruce, one of the pastors here in charge of adult discipleship and our Wednesday evening discipleship for adults. Mark, chapter 6, please. I'd like to go to the end of that chapter, verse number 42, down through the end of the chapter, and talk to you a little bit about what is there, the story that is there. I was up late this last week. As many of you know, I'm working on a doctoral dissertation. I'd like to say that that's the reason I was up late this past week. It wasn't necessarily. I had a lot of other things on my plate this past week. When I'm up late, if I'm doing something that requires mental focus, I usually do that alone. If I'm not, I usually do it with Jay Leno. And sometimes I do it with Jay Leno and Jimmy Fallon. And sometimes, who comes on after Jimmy? Well, I usually turn it off by 12.30 and figure if I'm still up, the last thing I need to do is watch more television. So I don't really know much about after. I, I was wondering what late nights with Jesus were like. Because late nights, we know what late nights on television are like. It is attempting to be as raunchy as possible without getting in trouble with the FCC and still get a laugh from your audience. That's mostly what late night television is. So in the spirit of that, I thought I would give you a top ten list this morning. Just kidding. Maybe it would be a top ten list on how to get lots of awards but no ratings. That would be the David Letterman way of late night television. Whatever the case might be, you might be thinking that any kind of connection to late night television and Jesus is entirely inappropriate. I would submit to you that it is not for a number of reasons. First of all, we know that Jesus liked to be around what the New Testament called sinners. It says that he was a friend of sinners. And if you've ever been one, a friend of sinners, you know that sinners like people who are funny. So I'm absolutely convinced that there were times when Jesus and his disciples stayed up late telling jokes. How do I know that? Well, because the New Testament is filled with jokes. We just miss them because it's been 2,000 years and a lot of miles since the Middle East 2,000 years ago. But there are just a lot of jokes that Jesus and his disciples told. In fact, one day he said, hey, fellas, did you hear the one about the Pharisees? And we would get, not get anything after that, but that's kind of the way that he was. And people like to hang out with him because he was a lot of fun. Not nearly as pious as some of us would suppose. I'm 100% convinced of that. Because the New Testament says that John the Baptist came neither eating nor drinking, and you didn't like him. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you don't like him. You just didn't like anything that came from God. So Jesus, I'm convinced, was one of those fascinating people. But if you stayed up late night with Jesus, you would find more than just humor and jokes. You would find a little bit of prayer like to think that I stayed up late this, this last week praying. One night I did, one or two nights. Because late night with Jesus also included a lot of prayer. And that's what you get here in John, and I'm sorry, in Mark chapter number 6. You get Jesus staying up late and prayers involved, and so the story goes something like this. Jesus had been preaching all day and ministering. They hadn't eaten all day, so Jesus asked, What do you have? And they said, We have a sack lunch. And Jesus took that sack lunch, multiplied it to feed 5,000 men plus women and children. Then after he had finished that particular session with people, maybe about 4 or 4.30 or 5, certainly no later than that, he sent them all away. And as the crowd was dispersing, he, as everything thinned out, it says, beginning in verse number 42, he made his disciples get into the boat. That's an interesting way to put it. He made his disciples get into the boat and head out to cross the Sea of Galilee, which is roughly the size and roughly the width of Lake Winnebago. 
So after having put his disciples in the boat and said, all right, you guys are going to go and I'm going to stay, he then, it says, went up into the mountain to pray. So late nights with Jesus included a great deal of prayer. He would, from time to time, stay up way into the hours of the morning and pray. I know that it had to be around 5 o'clock because it says that Jesus then looked out and saw his disciples struggling with the storm that had blown up on the lake. Well, you can only do that in daylight hours. It's not like you could do that any other time, probably. And the sun would have set roughly around 5, 6, 7 o'clock because in Jerusalem the sun sets somewhere between 5 and 8 throughout the entire year. And so he looked down and he saw them struggling but continued in prayer and continued in prayer and continued in prayer until about 3 or 4 in the morning when he decided that he would do something different. Late nights with Jesus were often about, wow. And sometimes they were about, whoa. And other times, late nights with Jesus would have been hilarious times. Well, you get the picture, I'm sure. As he was sending the crowds away and went up to find a place to pray, I am convinced that as that story unfolds, and if you've looked down at it and know much about the life of Jesus, you know the rest of that story. As that story unfolds, the place of prayer becomes in clear evidence for us. It's just crystal clear that prayer played such an important role in this story because after Jesus was done praying, he decided that he would walk out on the water. Now, I have stayed up late a little bit praying, and I have to tell you, I have never, when I was staying up late praying, thought, you know, I should just go to Lake Michigan and walk across to Michigan. How many of you have ever at any point in time in your life thought, you know, it would be really cool. I'm going to just try and see if I can walk on water right here. Now, excluding ice, how many of you have ever just thought, okay, I'm going to walk on water here and see. Any of you who, uh, John Vogie, you're a boat kind of guy. You ever been in a boat and thought, dude, let's just step out and see how this goes. I'm going to walk on water. Never really see because that's not, so this had to be something that was God directed. He thought, I'm going to walk out on water. And it says in Matthew that he intended to walk right past his disciples and go on to the other side. But as he was walk, intending to do that, Peter called out and said, Lord, is that you? Because they thought it was a ghost. Or something of that nature. So Jesus said, well, yeah, it's me. And Peter says, well, if it's really you, then tell me to come out and join you on the water. So Peter joins him walking on the water. That doesn't turn out so well. Then they get in the boat. And in Matthew it says that they looked at Jesus and they said, Behold, what manner of man is this? Which seemed to be a pretty typical and common response that they had. As I told you, it was often a wow kind of moment with Jesus. And as they got into the boat, the storm that had been raging, and storms on the Sea of Galilee could blow up quickly, and it was very dangerous to be, and still is very dangerous to be out on the Sea of Galilee when there's a storm. Kind of like being out on Lake Michigan in one of those January days. It can be very dangerous if the winds are really high. It's just not something that you want to do. Bad things can come from it. And so there they were, and things had, had died down immediately. And I think at that point in time, they began to ask Jesus, what have you been doing? And he said, I've been praying. And I said, that was seven hours ago that you left us. You've been praying all of this time? And Jesus said, yeah. Now at this point, we have a couple of options as directions we can go. Clearly, we want to talk about prayer this morning. I want to talk about prayer this morning. But I want to do that in a way that lets you know you do not have to beat yourself up about prayer. You may not be one who prays very much, and that's okay. I want you certainly to do better. 
But I don't want to beat you up about it. And I certainly don't want you to sit there and chastise yourself thinking, Oh, I really know I ought to do better. Let's set that aside just for a few moments this morning and see if we can figure out some ways to do better. I was interviewing a gentleman in Tennessee about general things, about spirituality for research. And he said that he came to a point in time in his life when he was in his late 30s where he was with a friend and he told his friend, you know, I don't even, I don't even know how to pray. What do you do? I don't even know what you do. And then his friend explained to him, well, here's what you do. So I am very much aware of the possibility that you could be sitting here and really have no idea what you do in prayer. And certainly... No idea what you do in prayer for seven, eight, or nine hours. For some of you, I'm sure that sounds more like torture than like anything that's fun. And I completely understand that. Especially doing it all night. I've been to one or two of those all-night prayer meetings. They can... Um, I fell asleep at 5 in the morning. I'm sorry, 4.30 in the morning, and we were supposed to go to 5. And everyone to this day who is in the prayer meeting reminds me, you're the one who fell asleep in the prayer meeting. As though they're better because they could stay up later as college students. I do know this, that Jesus was relentless in his pursuit of God and prayer. And we see that from verse number 45. Look back again, if you would please. Jesus made his disciples get into the boat when they found, and then he went and he found a place to pray because he relentlessly wanted to pursue prayer. So he made his disciples get, he didn't ask, he made them get in the boat so that they could go away from him and he could have some time alone with God. Too often we think of prayer as something that will help us when we need it so that we cry out in a time of great need and distress and that is what we ought to do. But not, not not always is something that's so important that we should relentlessly pursue it even when things are going good. If things were ever going good in life, they go good when you feed 5,000 people from one sack lunch. That to me seems like the time to coast on the moment. Let's just enjoy the moment. Sure, let's get in the boat together. We'll all have a wonderful time. This has been so great. Bring a little bit of that fish along and we'll eat a late night snack in the boat. It wasn't Jesus' approach at all. In fact, his approach was to say things are going so good i got to pray some more. So he relentlessly pursued his time with God in prayer saying, I have to go after something more with God. I have to go after a greater sense of prayer and a greater time set aside for God. Prayer should be so pursued that you look for times and places where you can pray, carving out time. We were talking about this over the Christmas break, and my sister-in-law shared what she does. She works in a, in a school library for a university demonstration school. She supervises college student workers in that library and she told me she made sure that she had college student helpers during her break so that she could absolutely go on break every day and at least she could spend those 10 to 15 minutes somewhere alone with God in prayer. That's not a bad system or solution at all. My wife often spends her commute time from our house in Glendale to her school where she teaches in Franklin 35 minutes on a great day, an hour on a bad day often spends that time in prayer. I hope she does more than praying. But I know that she at least spends some time in prayer while she is there. Because you must relentlessly carve out time so that you can pursue God in prayer. Get up early or stay up late. Whatever you have to do, relentlessly pursue a place of prayer with God. Find a partner who can help you creatively think of ways to relentlessly pursue God. And make sure that it becomes a part of what you do. Set aside a time where you will say, I will find time every day when I'm doing X or Y and I will pray so that I 
like and spend a little bit more time with God. And when you do that, you discover that you have found more and more times throughout the day and pretty soon you discover that you are fulfilling what the New Testament says. You are praying without ceasing because you have prayed pretty much the entire day. If the one retired pastor said that if the only time that you pray is when you're on your knees, you don't pray very much. I agree with that. There should be times throughout the day where I pray where I'm not setting aside time to close my eyes and kneel down. There should be other times that I say I'm going to spend time with God. There's a gentleman and other people who have attended here in the past who still come to our church and walk around our church building to pray, to spend time with God praying. And as they do that, they pray for things that take place here. This last summer in July, I'm sorry, in August at our church picnic, a guest came to our picnic the first time that they came and they have reported since that the moment they drove into our parking lot, they sensed something different here. I have assured them that the reason why they sense something different is because those who relentlessly pursue God in walking around our church praying that God's presence would be not only in the building but everywhere on our church grounds. Does that happen all of the time? happens enough of the time for me to know that God is in it and that there are in fact results from our prayer time that when you relentlessly pursue God in prayer he hears you he hears you and he and there is a reward for those who relentlessly pursue him in prayer If you are wondering at this point in time, why why do I pray and things aren't quite what they ought to be? Maybe there is a lack of relentless pursuit that you should re-examine and say, maybe I just need to be a little bit more relentless in my pursuit. Maybe I need to persist in prayer just a little bit more. Look at verse number 48. Jesus prayed a long time as he courageously persisted in prayer. It gets dark, as I said, between 5 and 8, just depending on the time of the year. Around this time of the year, it gets dark at 5 o'clock in Jerusalem. So the Sea of Galilee is just a few miles north of there. Later in the summertime, it gets dark closer to 8 o'clock, never any after 8 o'clock. Therefore, it would have somewhere... How do I know? I googled it. The source of all fine information, the internet. I know some of you who are, who are high schoolers, undergraduates, you think, well, yeah, of course. Those of us who did research without the Internet, we understand. You can do research without Googling something. But in this case, I just Googled it. And so it was dark late, and it, said that he, it says that he went walking on the water somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m. Probably not at 6 a.m. because there's a good chance it would have been getting light by then. And it's pretty clear it was dark when he went walking on the water. That means that somewhere from 7 in the evening till... Three in the morning, he was praying. That's a long time to pray. You have to really persist if you want to pray that long. This one is a little bit harder for people, I fully admit, to courageously persist in prayer because we don't usually do anything for a long time in our society. In our instantaneous society, people send me a text and then they see me ten minutes later and they said, Did you get my text? You didn't reply. No, I don't live in an instantaneous texting kind of connected world. I mean, I do, but I don't usually follow those kinds of rules. I set aside time to do that. Those of you who do, you understand fully. We live in such an instantaneous society from texting and other means of corresponding with people and an Internet on our phones so that you can Facebook and get an instantaneous reply from someone that we don't often stop and think that sometimes there are, there's communication that requires more persistence and a little bit longer to get something done. The world is not limited to 144 characters. Parents, that was your moment to say amen, okay? 
I'm on a one-man revolution to try to put a few boundaries on texting. I am 100% convinced that there is a teenager in this room who will text during my sermon. Those of you who think, not my teen, if not your teen, trust me, your teen's better than mine, because I'm 100% convinced that one of my teens has texted during a sermon in this building at some point in time. Probably without me knowing, maybe with me sitting next to them, texting in their pocket. How many of you teenagers can text in your pocket? You're laughing and teenagers aren't doing anything. Teenagers, you're either not participating or you are lying. Let's just test this out, okay? Josh, have you ever... You're an adult, right? The statute of limitations has run out, right? Yeah, okay, so you can say anything you want to. Mom and dad are in Florida, right? You ever texted in school in your pocket? Yes, I have. <laughs> I would ask if you've ever done that in the middle of a test, but I really don't want to get you in, in trouble. In our, in our society where that is so prevalent, we sometimes forget that you can communicate longer than a Twitter post and with more persistence than a text message and more longevity than the life of the battery on your cell phone. And because we forget that, we struggle with courageously persisting in prayer. And we don't understand that you have to go back to prayer and knowing that you may get an answer today and you may not get an answer for many years to come. We were sharing in a staff meeting a few months ago about a lady who was attending our church. And she found our church by just driving by and is driving by our church. She just kept feeling something inside of her saying you should go to that church. She was looking for a different church to attend. And as she was prompted in her heart, she ended up stopping. And as we shared that in a staff meeting, someone in that staff meeting said, you know, we used to go stand next to the side of the road and pray that people would just stop here. But that had been years since that prayer had taken place. You see, sometimes the answer to your prayer takes a little while to be seen. And you must persist in prayer in order to see the end result of that. The final chapter does not have to be written on what you are praying for today. You can continue to pray and you can eventually see the answer come because of that. I was struck by this this past Christmas break. As both of my daughters were home, one of them who was born with a temper... She was two minutes old and the doctor said, well, you got a breath holder, three minutes old, and the doctor said, and a bit of a temper. <laughs> I kept telling myself when she was two and three years old and life was a little bit stressful with her at two and three and five and six and, and 12 and 13 for that matter. <laughs> kept telling her I've got 18 years on this one. I don't have to work this out today. I have to keep at it, but I don't have to work this out today. I can persist, I can pray, and someday she will come back home, which she did this past, this past break, and she will say, you know, Dad, I don't stress very much at all anymore. People around me, in fact, would find it hard to believe that I used to be that kind of a person. Are my kids perfect? Oh, Lord, no. <laughs> Certainly not. But I just am so thankful that you can persist in prayer and you can see God answer. Because if I wasn't able to do that, I don't know what kind of a parent I would be. 
The final chapter has not yet been written. And the final chapter in your kids' lives have not yet been written. If they are not where you want them to be, I'm telling you, the final chapter is not written. Just keep in prayer. Stay in prayer. But pastor, I've been praying. How much longer do I have to pray? Clearly at least one more day. And if that's what it is, then pray one more day. Because you may, and you may not be able to look much farther down the road, but continue on saying, I'm going to pray at least one more day. And I'm going to courageously persist in prayer. And when I do that, I'm going to intentionally align my heart with God. Now, I know a little bit about prayer, at least from experience. And I know that you don't pray all night long over lists. I know that a good list at two in the morning lasts me about five minutes. I know that you don't pray for any extended period of time with a lot of lists. And if you do and you're saying, well, pastor, that's because intercession must not be your gift. I'm telling you, if you can intercede for someone for seven hours, you must be pretty redundant in your prayer. You just must repeat the same thing over and over again. Because prayer is not just about lists. And if Jesus could spend that much time in prayer, he could have prayed through the entire then known world, every country that, w that existed, and he could have done it in less than seven, seven hours. Prayer must have been about something more than just praying down a list of things, asking the Father for those things. Prayer must have been about aligning His heart with God. The times when I have prayed for an extended period of time, I have discovered the value of having my heart aligned with God and taking that time to align my heart with God's heart which doesn't involve me going down a list. It doesn't involve any of those things. In fact, the list actually makes it worse for me. Because when I go down a list and aligning my heart, I'm task-driven as a task-driven person. The task is to pray over this thing right here. i got to pray for the girls' club. i got to pray for Royal Rangers or whatever the case might be. But when I set all those things aside and say, okay, God, it's you and me. Let's just spend some time together here. Then I discover that my heart is more aligned with God's heart. And that's what prayer is about partially. It certainly is about lists, but it's also about aligning our heart with God's heart. It's about communing with Him. It's about intimacy with God. It's about listening to God and hearing what He has to say. This is meditation at its finest. Considering what God has for you in prayer and just allowing Him to speak to you, allowing your heart, your mind, your soul, your spirit to be filled with the things of God. Christian meditation is not about emptying yourself of anything. It's about filling yourself with the Word of Jesus Christ and His presence and His power. And when you do that in prayer, your heart becomes more aligned with His heart. And pretty soon you discover that you are thinking the things that He wants you to think, whereas before you might have been doing something different. Prayer is about aligning my heart, intentionally aligning my heart with His. This past week I was spending time in prayer and God spoke to me about a situation and told me, here's what you need to do. I'd been procrastinating it. I'm still procrastinating it. I'm a little bit better than I was at the beginning of the week, but I've still, I've still not completed the task, and I have to today. Today is the final day. I know that from my time in prayer. I need to do it today. How do I know that? Because I was listening to God, and I was aligning my heart with God's heart. And God spoke to me and said, you know, you've been out of alignment here. I had this for you. You should have done it before. There's still time. You need to do it now, and you need to do it this week. I don't have to beat myself up in prayer. God has a way of just kind of aligning me. And when He does that, sometimes it's like an alignment of your back. You feel better after the, at the end, but everything kind of cracks as it goes back into place. And you know this is not fun at the moment. 
I discover in this story that Jesus had a simple trust in prayer. The story is about Jesus calming a storm. Now they tell me that I'm not supposed to spiritualize this and talk about Jesus calming the spiritual storms. It's not good interpretation. And by they, who they are, I mean the professor inside of me. I know that's not what I'm supposed to do. So just hold on for a few minutes and then I'll spiritual... Never mind. The story is about trusting God. It's about Jesus trusting the Father for the moment. He saw His disciples struggling. And sometimes we gloss over that. Now think about this for a moment. Parents, I want you to think about this, okay? You got a daughter, right? All right, I want you to think of a couple of them. I want you to think about this. You see your daughter struggling. What is the thing that you, that you really want to do? You just want to dive in and help a little bit? Yeah. Do? I'm a doer. Yeah. I see my kids struggling. I'm a doer. Let's get this fixed. I'll dive in. I'll, I got 14 suggestions for what you ought to do. I'm a doer. We're going to dive in and we're going to get this fixed. I imagine that Jesus kind of was that sort of guy. He knew that eventually he was going to right the wrongs that were going on here for his disciples. He knew eventually he had to calm the storm. He knew that he had to help them out. But it says he saw them struggling. In order to do that, it had to be daylight hours and he went walking at 3 to 6 in the morning. Now just stick with the logic there for a moment. If you have ever had something weighing heavy on your mind in prayer, you know the only thing you pray about is what's really heavy on your mind. So he either spent all of that time praying for his disciples in the boat, or he was able to set that aside and say, God is going to take care of this. Through a simple trust in the Father's power. Jesus was able to set aside all of the things that were taking place, the storm that was raging on the outside, probably the fear for His disciples that was raging on the inside, and set all of that aside so that He could spend more time in prayer and then calmly walk out on the water to His disciples, get in the boat, and calm the storm. So in fact, it is about calming the storm with a simple trust inside of me that says I'm going to simply trust God for the things that are going on around me on the outside and the things that are going on on the inside. It's striking how much Jesus had to trust for this whole event. Not just for walking on the water. I mean, that in and of itself requires a degree of trust. But also because he understood that God was on the throne. He could simply trust that God was eventually going to take care of this. And then he could go on in prayer. Both the simple trust and the intentional alignment that I've talked about. They go hand in hand and they are both about understanding that God sits on the throne of the universe and he reigns on the throne of the universe. And that in prayer, that means I ought to trust him. He desires also to sit on the throne of my heart in a real figurative kind of way. Desires to come into my heart and allow me to say, I'm going to trust you, God, for the things in my life. And if you've not yet gotten to that point in time in your spiritual journey, I can tell you that it is a liberating moment when you say, I'm going to trust God for the things in my life and I'm going to let Him be on the throne of my life and dictate what I do. If you are one who's used to calling all the shots in your life, let me encourage you to try to let Him call some of them. And to work your way up to letting Him call all of the shots in your life. Because when you do that, you will be humbly submitting to God in prayer. And prayer is, after all, about humbly submitting ourselves to God's power. This story is partially about power. The tremendous power of walking on water. The tremendous power of calming the storm. And power in your life comes through prayer. It's your power source. 
while the story is about humble submission, it is also about finding a way in our lives to humbly submit to God, to have that kind of power in our life. It's really a lost art to humbly submit to God. Most of us don't even think about it much anymore. We think about our spiritual lives in terms of, this will help me. Rather than, I'm going to do this because this is what God wants me to do. We think about things in terms of benefits. And sometimes I even preach sermons myself that way. Four benefits to this. Three positive outcomes for this. Four, seven outcomes of correction in your life. See, I can even put a positive spend on God disciplining us. And sometimes I forget myself, and maybe you're a little bit like me. Sometimes I can forget that there is an aspect of Christianity where I am to submit to God because He's God and just do what He wants. Now, you may struggle with that a great deal. Power structures, those of you who have sociological training, I understand all of that. Oh, I'd love to go into it. It would bore most people. Let me just tell you, you need to set all of that aside and reread the Bible because the Bible is pretty clear. There's one king who sits on the throne of the universe and he desires, desires to sit on the throne of your life. To be the one who calls the shots in your life. And he is the one who cannot be fooled. You maybe can text in your pocket while sitting next to mom and dad. You can maybe fool them a great deal, but I'm telling you, you can't fool God. He saw you when you got up this morning and he will see you when you go to bed tonight. And anything that you think you're doing in between that time period to fool God, you are mistaken. He is not fooled. He sees you when you walk down the hallways at school and he sees you when you're hanging out with your friends way too late at night. And he knows the things you're doing. And he is not fooled for one moment. And he is gently poking and prodding, saying, I have something more for you. When I was a teenager, I used to uh, live for God when I was a teenager, and I used to have these great ideas. Uh, well, I'd hear a sermon like this about prayer, and I'd think, all right, I have a study hall, first hour. When I was a sophomore, I will go to my study hall place, which was in the band room. I'll go into that room, up the stairs a little bit. I'll close the door, and I'll pray every day. And so Monday, I'd go into that room for study hall, and I'd pray for about five minutes, and then the bell would ring, and I would wake up and go to the next class. Because sometimes the best intentions that we have about prayer don't quite get fulfilled. I discovered that God knows that and is in the process of leading me. And the most important thing at that point in time in my life was that I had wanted to do it and that I had tried to do it. And even if I had failed, He was going to give me the next chance on Tuesday. Well, then Wednesday would come and I, of course, would have procrastinated my homework because weeks were long when I, during that particular year. And I would have homework to do all hour and I would, at the end of the hour, then beat myself up again saying, I was supposed to pray and I had to do the stupid homework. And over time, I've discovered that God is a gracious God who understands my weaknesses and failings. He is gently trying to lead me to a higher place in prayer with Him. But He is gently leading me and not slapping me around. Saying, you idiot, you don't do this very well. No, He's much more like a father who sees that I struggle and says, I want something more for you and the last chapter in your prayer life is not yet written. 
You can and you will come to a better place. Just persist. Just persist. Relentlessly pursue it. And you will find one day that you have arrived at what you wanted in prayer. You might at this point in time be saying, Pastor Bruce, you are describing something very different than my experience with God and my experience in prayer. Perhaps you've realized this morning as I've been talking that you don't even have an experience with God. Then this is your moment and God is calling you. And I just want to give you the opportunity to respond to what God has been doing in your heart if that's where you're at this morning. Because at this very moment, God has been tapping you on the shoulder saying you're not where you ought to be. And you know you're not where you ought to be with me. And if that's the case, in just a moment, I'm going to give you a chance to respond and say, you're right. I'm not where I ought to be and I'm not living the life I ought to live. I would rather be living for God than doing the things that I am doing. And then I'm going to give another group of people the chance to respond who say, I'm really not where I ought to be in prayer. And here at the beginning of the year, I'm going to recommit myself to prayer. I'm going to see where that takes me. Now, for that group of people, you may be saying, you know, Pastor Bruce, I've done that quite a bit. I've been around this church or any church in general, and I've committed to prayer a lot. It doesn't really work for me. Let me tell you this. It's never going to work for you if you don't recommit to it. It's that simple. It's, it's kind of like dieting. You could say, well, it doesn't work for me to diet. I always go off the diet. Yeah, but if you don't ever start, of course, it's not going to work for you. There has to be a point in time in which you say, I'm just going to do this. And prayer is kind of that way. There has to be a point in time in which you say, I'm just going to commit to it. And I'm going to see where that takes me. And so if that's you, God is speaking to your heart. And He's prompting you to say, commit to just a little bit more this morning. Would you pray with me? 